This week, Cedra launches its rights offering. Nine West was granted second day relief, and Feral Gas begins to address its capital structure. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico and Venezuela. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Nick Lichtenberg. And I'm Karen Lund, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, our legal analyst, Teresa Lee, will sit down with legal analyst Ana Lucia Hurtado and reporter Chase Collum to discuss First Energy Solutions and its battle with FERC over the power purchase agreement. It's Sunday, May 13th. On Tuesday, Cedra launched the rights offering tied to its Chapter 11 plan. The subscription period expires June 8th. The rights are part of an almost $1.1 billion investment split between an $880 million secured note, with 55% of the reorganized equity detachable from the note on the effective date, and a $200 million direct equity investment for 24% of the new equity. Meanwhile, competitor Transocean announced on Wednesday that it and Hafen Capital Management have purchased a one-third interest in Seadrill's West Regal, a new-build, harsh-environment semi-submersible. The total purchase price for the rig, built by Semcorp Marine's Jurong Shipyard subsidiary, is $500 million. The rig, renamed the Transocean Norge, is expected to be delivered in the fourth quarter of 2018 and available for charter in the first quarter of 2019. Seadrill had previously said in February that the debtors were engaged in discussions with Jurong and a third-party purchaser for the sale of the rig which would result in a significant cash payment to non-debtor NADL. Earlier in the week, Cedril received plan effective and solicitation exclusivity extensions through the earlier of the plan effective date and early 2019. On Monday, Feral Gas, the propane-focused master limited partnership, announced that it entered into a new credit facility maturing in 2023 that consists of a $300 million revolver and a $275 million term loan. The new facility replaces the previous one, set to mature this October. Feral Gas still has work to do as it faces maturities next year on its $166 million AR securitization facility and the year after on its $357 million parent company notes. In the press release announcing the new facility, Feral Gas said it is, quote, evaluating various options related to its near-dated outstanding unsecured bonds and that it expects to close on a, quote, multi-year extension of its AR facility in the near term. In a subsequently filed 8K, the company might have given clues as to how it wishes to address the parent notes and listed a number of covenants for the new facility that allows for the redemption or purchase of the parent notes with proceeds from certain asset sales, as well as the incurrence of debt or liens to refinance the parent notes and permits investments for the purpose of a purchase or exchange of the parent notes for permitted debt under certain conditions. Reorg estimated that following the new facility, along with changes in required letters of credit post-recent asset sales, feral gas pro forma liquidity increases by approximately $135 million. However, leverage through the parent company remains elevated at approximately nine times. Shoe retailer Nine West had most of its requested second-day relief granted, although the parties agreed to adjourn the hearing on the debtors' dip financing motion. Joseph Graham of Kirkland & Ellis for the debtors said discussions are underway about moving the deadline to object to the motion. 
Daniel Golden of Aiken Gump for the Unsecured Creditors Committee also asserted that the proposed DIP order contains, quote, aggressive language designed to inhibit the UCC's ability to investigate and challenge the secured lender's pre-petition claims. He also argued that the fees and payments coming from the DIP financing may be too expensive. According to Golden, the UCC may be trying to find an alternative DIP financing that would be junior to the secured term loan. Golden also cited, quote, troubling relationships between Kirkland and Ellis and Sycamore Partners, which led the debtor's 2014 leverage buyout. Specifically, he said, Sycamore had previously retained Kirkland for other unrelated matters, and Kirkland also suggested and put in place the debtor's two independent directors, who were investigating causes of action related to the LBO. Further troubling, he said, is the fact that the UCC is required to finish its investigation of LBO causes of action in three and a half months, even though the independent directors have had seven months to investigate those claims and still aren't finished. According to Golden, the UCC's solution is to place all of the potential litigation regarding the LBO and the carve-out transactions into a post-confirmation trust. On the island of Puerto Rico, Governor Ricardo Rosselló presented a draft recommended budget to the Oversight Board last weekend, recommending an $8.8 billion Commonwealth General Fund budget for fiscal year 2019. The budget assumes pension payments and budget reserves and provides just under $7 billion for Commonwealth government operations. However, on Thursday, PROMESA issued a notice of violation, informing the Puerto Rico government that the proposed fiscal 2019 budget submitted by the administration of Governor Rosselló last week is not compliant with the certified fiscal plan and is lacking a range of required information. Puerto Rico was, again, one of the central issues on the earnings calls for bond insurers this week, as Ambach CEO and President Claude LeBlanc commented during the company's call that, quote, there has been little progress toward implementation of meaningful government reforms or consensual debt restructurings. MBIA and National Public Finance Guarantee CEO Bill Fallon also addressed Puerto Rico, citing a lack of, quote, concrete developments on island issues in recent months. The statements contrast last week's comments by Assured Guarantee President and CEO Dominic Frederico, who voiced optimism about recent developments in Puerto Rico's debt restructuring process. In Venezuela, calls to suspend the snap presidential election set for May 20th continued this week, as U.S. Vice President Michael Pence labeled the elections a, quote, sham. And he urged President Nicolas Maduro to hold real, free, transparent, and fair elections. The call to suspend the presidential election comes after the European Union's high representative, Federica Mogherini, called on the Venezuelan government to revise the electoral calendar based on, quote, an agreed and credible timeline with the opposition. Within Venezuela, opposition parties under the Frente Amplio movement, which includes members from the Mesa de Unidad Democrática Party, are calling for a mobilization across the country to, quote, take the streets and repudiate the election. Other top red stories of the week were, number one, an initiation of the growing opioid litigation by Reorg's litigation intelligence team. Companies affected, Endo, Teva, Malincrot, Rite Aid, and Albertsons. Number two, Reorg's new coverage of Malincrot. Number three, Monotronic's subscriber base continues to decline as unit attrition increases. And now we'll pass it over to Jim Holloway in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. 
Thank you all, and greetings from the Gulf Coast of Texas, where the pollen is finally retreating, and we're starting to see some spring-like weather, meaning the mercury is tapping the 90s. Not really summer here until we get 110 over a streak of about two weeks, and I'm hoping we'll get there soon. Anyways, lesson on the earnings front this week, which I'm sure is at least everyone, and a busiest sort of calendar, as I reckon a lot of people's thoughts are starting to shift to summer and just getting away from it all. So, on Monday, May 14th, we have an omnibus hearing in First Energy, which is, of course, a subject of this week's Deep Dive, and it features my friend and colleague Ana Lucia Hurtado, who, as I speak, is on her way to Austin, the capital of the Lone Star State, and also a planned, uh, combined planned DS hearing for Southeastern Grocers, and a preliminary injunction hearing for LBI Media, and a sales settlement hearing in Atvion. Tuesday, May 15th, Oral arguments regarding the GSEs before the Eighth Circuit, an omnibus hearing in Toys R Us, and a combined plan and DS hearing for EV Energy, and earnings from Concordia. Wednesday, May 15th, the Dip Cash Management hearing for Nine West, and earnings from Cengage. And it's a hectic Thursday, May 17th, with omnibus hearing for two companies with operations near me, Pacific Drilling and Mosey and Gasolfi. We also have the expiration for the latest forbearance in Rex Energy, an early tender deadline in community health, and the shareholder meeting for GNC, which had been adjourned to this day to allow the company more time to assemble a quorum for its issue of convertible preferreds to Harbin Pharmaceutical, and if that ain't enough, earnings from J.C. Penney along with a conference call. And Friday, we end the week with a settlement hearing in Zohar, and as is the custom when mentioning that entity, some wisdom from Ms. Tilton's Twitter feed. At every moment, the world is whispering opportunities. Listen closely. She has a point about that, you know. And back to y'all in New York. Thanks, Jim. As always, we will be on the lookout for those developments in the coming days. Now we'll turn it over to Teresa, who sat down with our legal and reporting teams to discuss First Energy Solutions and its battle with FERC over the debtor's power purchase agreements. Thank you for that introduction. Now I have with me today the legal and reporting team covering First Energy Solutions, Ana Lucia Hurtado and Chase Collum. Ana Lucia is a distressed debt legal analyst who, prior to joining Ruerg Research, clerked for bankruptcy judge Robert Drain and was an associate in the corporate restructuring group at Skadden. Reporter Chase Collum was previously a senior reporter at IJ Global, and prior to that, he was a reporter at Infrastructure Investor and an editor at BQE Media. Thanks for joining me today, everyone. Now, this week was a busy one for First Energy. There was an omnibus hearing earlier in the week, and then on Friday, the bankruptcy court held a hearing on the debtor's motion for a preliminary injunction against the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. At the center of it all is a number of power purchase agreements. So a little bit of background here. A power purchase agreement is a contract between a buyer and a seller of electricity that generally defines all the terms for that sale including the schedule for delivery, payment terms such as price, and termination. Now, while these contracts can provide a framework for the sale of power, they can also lock companies into long-term obligations to buy and sell power at unfavorable rates when the markets turn. The First Energy Solutions debtors have several of these power purchase agreements, or PPAs, under which they're forced to purchase power generated by various PPA counterparties. And the debtors say that they've determined that they'll lose hundreds of millions of dollars as a result of these unfavorably priced agreements. So, Anna Lucia, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with this FERC adversary proceeding and what exactly they're litigating here? Sure. So, 
As the first energy solutions debtors previously disclosed, the debtors intend to exit the retail power generation business. With that goal in mind, as well as their overall aim to help their reorganization process, the debtors have filed a number of motions to reject certain purchase power agreements, or PPAs, um, that they've deemed to be extraordinarily burdensome to their estates. The adversary proceeding filed by two of the debtors, First Energy Solutions, or FES, and First Energy Generation, uh, also referred to as FG, um, on April 1st, which happened to be the day right after the debtors filed for Chapter 11, uh, is tied to their those requests to reject nine long-term PPAs, as well as a multi-party intercompany PPA with OVEC, as you mentioned. More specifically, FES and FG want two things from their lawsuit. First, they're asking for injunctive relief, precluding FERC to ta- from taking any action ordering the debtors to continue performing under the PPAs at issue. And second, they want a declaration that the bankruptcy court has exclusive jurisdiction over the adjudication of the debtors' proposed rejections. So ultimately, the big legal question here is, who has jurisdiction over the debtor's request to reject these PPAs? And the debtors say it's only the bankruptcy court and that even though wholesale power agreements like the PPAs are subject in certain respects to FERC's jurisdiction over wholesale electric rates, FERC has no jurisdiction over the debtor's request to reject these PPAs. On the other hand, the defendants, which currently include FERC and two intervener defendants, OVEC and another PPA counterparty, Crane Wind, say that there's concurrent jurisdiction here, meaning that both the bankruptcy court and FERC would ultimately have to bless the proposed rejections. The major issue here is whether the bankruptcy court has exclusive jurisdiction to adjudicate the debtor's proposed rejection of these PPAs and the 2017 multi-party PPA with OVEC. So now why do the debtors want FERC out of the picture? And conversely, why would the defendants, FERC, OVEC, and Crane Wind, want a quote-unquote concurrent jurisdiction finding here? The reason why this jurisdictional dispute matters is because the answer may impact how easily the debtors will be able to obtain approval for these proposed rejections. So if, as the debtors argue, only the bankruptcy court has jurisdiction over uh, the proposed rejection of these PPAs, then as a general matter, Um, the debtors would only have to satisfy a fairly deferential business judgment standard to obtain the bankruptcy court's blessing for those rejections. Um, If, on the other hand, there's concurrent jurisdiction, then the bankruptcy, bankruptcy court's blessing, while still necessary, won't be sufficient. Instead, the debtors would have to also obtain approval from FERC to reject the PPAs, and FERC would use a heightened public interest standard to evaluate the proposed rejections. That standard is much more onerous than the business judgment standard used by the bankruptcy court. So as a practical matter, if the bankruptcy court were to approve the rejections, FERC would have the ability to effectively veto the bankruptcy court's blessing and preclude the debtors from rejecting the PPAs. 
uh, FERC and the PPA counterparties have different motivations that animate their view um, that concurrent jurisdiction exists here. For FERC, it's a matter of preserving what it views as its jurisdictional reach over the PPAs at issue and the relief being requested by the debtors. According to FERC, relief requested in FES and FG's lawsuit aims, um, aims to strip FERC of its jurisdiction pursuant to the Federal Power Act to consider whether to authorize changes to filed rate con energy contracts like the PPAs. Um, unlike FERC, the PPA counterparty defendants like OVEC and Crane Wind have a significant amount of money riding on this jurisdictional question. If the bankruptcy court, uh, Judge Allen Koschuk here, finds that the bankruptcy court has exclusive jurisdiction to adjudicate the proposed rejections, then there's a high likelihood that the court will grant the debtor's rejection motions, again, assuming it uses the general uh, business judgment rule standard. Um, and this means that any PPA counterparties would just have pre-petition unsecured breach of contract claims on account of the rejections. On the other hand, um, if there's a fi finding of concurrent jurisdiction and FERC ultimately blocks the debtor's attempts to reject the PPAs, then as a practical matter, instead of the millions of dollars that they'd be saving by rejecting the contracts, the debtors would be forced to continue paying uh, the PPA counterparties 100 cents on the dollar on these contracts that the debtors, again, have already determined are extraordinarily burdensome and aren't necessary for their reorganization. So I had talked a little bit about um, exactly what power purchase agreements are, but can you tell us a little bit more about these 10 PPAs that are at issue and why the debtors believe that rejecting them is so important? Absolutely. Um, the first one and, and the one that's gotten a lot of attention is the OVEC intercompany PPA, which obligates debtor FG to purchase 4.85% of the power that OVEC's fossil fuel plants generate until either the year 2040 or until OVEC ceases to operate. With respect to the other nine PPAs, eight of those are renewable energy PPAs, and the other one is a power purchase agreement with Forked River Power, which is a dual fuel-fired cycle combustion power producer. Other than the PPA with Forked River, which the debtors say terminated by its own terms on April 17th of this year, the other eight PPAs have remaining terms running to various end dates between 2024 and 2033. During 2017, the OVEC PPA, along with the nine other PPAs, accounted for about 3% of the power that FES bought and sold into the wholesale market. Again, like I mentioned earlier, the amount of money at issue in this dispute is is particularly significant. So according to the debtor's filings, if they're not permitted to reject the PPAs and are instead required to continue performing under the contracts, that would result in approximately $765 million in losses to the debtors over the next 22 years on an undiscounted basis or more than $475 million in losses on a net present value basis. Of the 10 PPAs, the OVEC contract is particularly significant. 
the debtors have estimated that based on current expectations, FG would lose about $268 million on an undiscounted basis if it were required to continue performing through the end of the OVEC PPA's remaining term. And the second most significant PPA is the Crane Wind PPA. The debtors estimate that for that one, and based on current expectations, FES would lose about $103 million over the remaining term of that PPA. Now, you mentioned earlier that the debtors launched this lawsuit just a day after filing for Chapter 11. Given that timing, is it safe to assume that the jurisdictional issue was already on their radar when they filed for bankruptcy? Yes, definitely. In fact, on March 26, five days before the debtors filed for Chapter 11, OVEC filed an administrative proceeding before FERC, and through that proceeding, OVEC uh, asked for finding, well, three findings. First, that FES's anticipated breach of the multi-party PPA with OVEC would amount to termination of the PPA in violation of both the filed rate doctrine and the contract itself. It also asked for a finding that FERC has the exclusive jurisdiction to determine whether FES's anticipated breach of OVEX PPA by rejection or some other manner uh, is a matter exclusively to be determined by FERC. And the final finding that it requested through its proceeding was an alternative finding that if FERC were to determine that its jurisdiction isn't exclusive, um, it would initiate proceedings to adjudicate whether the debtor's rejection of OVEX PPA would be contrary to the public interest. So the catalyst to FES and FG's adversary proceeding filing appears to have been OVEC's initiation of its action before FERC, uh, which the debtors wanted to enjoin before FERC took any action or issued any order that could impede or divest what the debtors say is the bankruptcy court's exclusive jurisdiction to permit the rejection of the PPAs. So Chase, it seems like this sort of PPA unwinding or attempted unwinding is something that's not unique to First Energy. What can you tell us about how the merchant power sector in general is faring and whether we'll be seeing these similar types of disputes in the near future? Uh, sure, yeah. So um, I guess let's talk about merchant power first. Um, across the board, really, merchant power has been very publicly struggling for the last few years. Uh, the sector has been challenged by low gas prices, renewable uh, energy distribution, uh, increasingly efficient new generation, and historically low stagnant demand. Uh, and the last of those really caught more than a few uh, U.S. power producers and investors by surprise. So uh, historically, Merchant really started gaining traction in the late 1990s and the early 2000s before sort of falling out of fashion about the time of the Enron collapse. And and then it made another resurgence about 2012 and 2013 uh, on the development side. As far as the unwinding of PPAs goes, this isn't something we've seen a lot of, but not too, too long ago, there was some debate in the EFH case about the ability to terminate wind PPAs. 
In that case, three wind farms argued that Luminance bankruptcy filing triggered a contractual termination right that was not prevented by automatic stay given their interpretation of bankruptcy code section 556 and the assertion that the PPAs in question represented forward contracts. In the case of First Energy, the plaintiffs are arguing that the 10 PPAs they're seeking to reject under Chapter 11, Section 365 are executory contracts that represent, uh, quote, an archetypal case of contracts that should be rejected in bankruptcy. Will we see more disputes around termination of PPAs in bankruptcy court? Well, I don't have that crystal ball in hand, um, but the potential is definitely there. Uh, at the same time, PPAs are becoming less common, especially in wind power, uh, and hedging arrangements are taking a more prominent role. Uh, whereas developers used to be able to find a windy location, set up a project, and pretty much guarantee a payday, there are a lot of externalities that could cut into profits at this point. Uh, you're seeing congestion, curtailment, and the winding down of subsidies, uh, just to name a few um, of the headwinds that are facing developers these days. First Energy Solutions is planning on closing down its nuclear power plants, but it seems like we're seeing some impacts on the gas power providers as well, right? Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, aging coal and nuclear plants have been hit the hardest because of their high fixed operating costs. So we're seeing a lot of retirements and shutdowns for those fuel types, but they're not the only ones to fall victim to these trends. Um, Panda Temple in Texas and La Paloma in California, the, these are gas-fired power plants um, that were for, uh, forced into bankruptcy, for example. Um, another plant in California, the Sutter Energy Center, was closed in 2016 due to a lack of sufficient sales. Um, of course, there are other factors at play in California, including the Aliso Canyon gas leak in 2016 that have encouraged the transition away from gas-fired power plants. Um, as of March, NRG was planning to shut down three of its gas-fired plants, and four other developing plants were put on hold while utilities consider renewable alternatives. Okay, so now that we have some background on the merchant power sector and on why this might be an issue going forward, Annalisio, can you break down what's going on here in court? Yes. So before today, uh, the bankruptcy judge, Judge Alan Koschik, granted the debtor's request for a temporary restraining order, or TRO, uh, against FERC. And that TRO was set to expire on Friday since the preliminary injunction hearing was set for Friday. So starting on Friday morning and for several hours, uh, the bankruptcy court held a hearing on the debtor's preliminary injunction motion, which, as I mentioned earlier, sought to preliminary enjoin, preliminarily enjoin FERC from taking any action um, requiring or mandating that the debtors continue performing under their PPAs or any other action that would have had the practical effect of precluding the bankruptcy court from adjudicating the rejection motions. Judge Koschik heard oral argument from the debtors and the UCC on the one hand, and FERC, OVEC, and Crane Wind on the other hand. After the hearing, Judge Koschik ultimately sided with the debtors and granted the debtors' request for a preliminary injunction. Can you explain what happened, Anna Lucia? At Friday's hearing, after Judge Koschik heard oral argument from all of the parties, he ruled from the bench and granted the preliminary injunction requested by FES and, 
and FG, and supported by the Unsecured Creditors Committee. Judge Kostchik's preliminary injunction order, which was entered on Friday afternoon, preliminarily enjoins FERC from doing two things. First, from initiating or continuing any proceeding that's been brought before it, and from issuing any order to require the debtor plaintiffs to continue performing under the PPAs or limiting them to seeking abrogation of any of the PPAs. And second, FERC is also preliminarily enjoined from entering any order that would require the debtor plaintiffs to continue performing on the PPAs in a manner that would interfere with the bankruptcy court's exclusive jurisdiction to hear and adjudicate the rejection motions. The court's ruling can be broken down into two main parts. One is based on the bankruptcy code's automatic stay, and the other is based on section 105A of the code, which empowers bankruptcy courts to issue any order, process, or judgment that's necessary or appropriate to carry out the provisions of the code. With respect to the automatic stay, Judge Kostchik concluded that FERC is subject to the automatic stay under section 362A of the code, and more specifically, that the stay precludes the continuation of OVEC's FERC proceeding and the commencement of any similar proceeding before FERC. He also found that such FERC proceedings do not qualify for Section 362B4's police powers exception to the automatic stay. Therefore, the bankruptcy court concluded that the preliminary injunction against FERC is entirely consistent with and in furtherance of the automatic stay. Additionally, Judge Kostya concluded that even if the automatic stay didn't apply, the preliminary injunction is still warranted pursuant to Section 105A of the Bankruptcy Code. Significantly, Judge Kostyuk relied heavily on the Fifth Circuit's Murant decision from 2004 in reaching this ruling. Since the Ohio Bankruptcy Court is within the Sixth Circuit, the Fifth Circuit's Merritt opinion is not binding, but... Judge Kostchik said that he found Merritt to be the most persuasive opinion on this point. Here, with respect to the 105A of the code provision, the Fifth Circuit said and took the view that bankruptcy courts can grant injunctive relief to prohibit FERC from negating a debtor's rejection by requiring continued performance on the contract at the pre-rejection filed rate. Merritt also held that the Federal Power Act does not preempt the bankruptcy court's jurisdiction to authorize the rejection of a contract subject to FERC regulation, and that a debtor's motion to reject such a contract is not a collateral attack on the contract's filed rate, since that rate is given full effect when determining the amount of breach of contract damages resulting from the rejection. As for the preliminary injunction factors, the bankruptcy court concluded that at this stage, the debtors have a high likelihood of success on the merits with respect to their ultimate request for a permanent injunction against FERC. Judge Kostchik also found that both the balance of the equities and their reparable harm inquiry tips in favor of the debtors. Although the judge acknowledged the great concern that members of the public have with the proposed PPA rejections, the bankruptcy judge's order states that OVEC's FERC proceeding and any similar FERC proceeding may incidentally serve the public interest, but would more substantially adjudicate private rights. His order also finds that a successful suit by FERC or by OVEC or another PPA counterpart 
party before FERC would, quote, result in a pecuniary advantage to certain parties vis-a-vis creditors of the debtor's estates, contrary to the bankruptcy code's provision at priorities, unquote. That result is the obvious and dominant purpose of OVEC's FERC proceeding, according to the order. The judge said that he intends to issue a written opinion in the coming days or weeks that will more fully set forth his reasoning, so we'll be looking out for that. Okay, so what are the next steps? In terms of temporal scope, by its terms, the preliminary injunction order will remain in effect until Judge Kostjuk issues a final ruling at the conclusion of the adversary proceeding, unless, of course, the order is modified or vacated by a subsequent order of the bankruptcy court. That means that the natural next step in the adversary proceeding would be for the parties to prepare for and ultimately argue the merits of what FES and FG are seeking through this adversary proceeding, namely permanent injunctive relief against FERC and declaratory relief, as we discussed earlier. As part of that preparation, the parties may want to engage in in some discovery, and unless they're able to resolve the dispute outside of court, then the end game would be a trial or an evidentiary hearing, after which Judge Kostchik would issue a final ruling in the adversary proceeding. The big question right now is whether that natural progression will be stalled or Put on hold, so to speak, by an appeal of Judge Kostjik's preliminary injunction order and decision. At the conclusion of Friday's hearing, the parties and the court briefly touched on the topic of appeal. Judge Kostjik's order makes clear that the time for filing a notice of appeal uh, will run from the date of his written opinion, which means that once he issues that written decision, any party who wants to appeal must do so within 14 days of that issuance. One thing to note is one of the very important legal issues that remain outstanding. And it's it's one aspect that the bankruptcy court didn't rule on or express any view on um, at Friday's hearing. And that's the standard that would apply to the debtor's proposed PPA rejections. Interestingly, Even though the rejection decision is generally left to the business judgment of the debtors, the Fifth Circuit uh, in Morant, again, the decision that the Judge Kostjik said was one of the most persuasive or the most persuasive, um, found that because of the unique nature of contracts for the interstate sale of electricity at wholesale and the public's interest in the transmission and sale of electricity, use of the business judgment standard normally applicable to rejection motions would be inappropriate. So when the Fifth Circuit remanded to the district court, uh, the Fifth Circuit said to the district court that it should consider applying a more rigorous standard by which it would authorize rejection, including through carefully scrutinizing the impact of rejection on the public interest and whether rejection would cause disruption in the supply of electricity to other public utilities or to consumers. So it's going to be very interesting to see whether Judge Kostchik ends up prescribing to that aspect of Morant or whether he will ultimately depart from the Fifth Circuit on the standard point and stick to business judgment, which would make rejection of the PPAs much easier for the debtors. 
there's going to be a status conference in the adversary proceeding and uh, in relation to the debtor's rejection motions this upcoming Monday, May 14th at 1 p.m. Eastern times. Great. So it seems like this case is it's complicated and it's definitely not over. And uh, merchant power in general will be something that we continue to keep an eye on here at Reorg. Thank you, Anna Lucia and Chase, for joining me today and tune in next time. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page. Or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lung, and this has been The Week in Reorg. 